0: that <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Greetings, heathens. Welcome to Hail Satan. This is the podcast exploring Satanism, culture, and life in general through the eyes of modern Satanists. My name is Joseph Rose. I'm a member of an amazing independent congregation called Satanic Delco, and we welcome members from anywhere in the world. If you want to learn a little bit more, visit satanicdelco.com. And while I'm at it, Satanic Delco is still raising money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We only have a little time left to reach our goals, so if you have even a few bucks to spare, this is a really nice cause to donate it to. And if you'd like to do that, please visit satanicdelco.com slash give. Today I'm going to be examining the freedom to offend. It's an integral part of the ideology of the Satanic Temple and an integral part of what it means to be an American. But first Let me express my appreciation for a whole bunch of amazing Satanists who have joined up with us on Patreon. We've got David, Zephrael, I think, Jeremy, Don, Itzamna, Itzamna, Connie, Damien, Taintis, Noemi, Matthew, Liam, Justin, James, Martin, one of many, Dickie, Brianne, Jonathan, David, Sterling, Randy, Edvin, Dan, Adam, Kyle, Will, Blood God, King of Potato Kingdom, Ryan, and Steve. Um, I never know what to say, guys. Every time someone new joins up, I am pleasantly surprised and excited and grateful And I look forward to having everyone integrate into our community a bit. We've got a great thing going, and it's thanks to all of you. So thank you all very much. You're the best. If you've got a moment, please visit HailSatanPodcast.com. Link up with us on the social media buttons that you'll find there on the website. You'll also find a form on the website to drop me an email. I love when you guys do that. And of course, there's a button to join the Patreon There are several tiers with various cool benefits, including the Greetings from Hell Satanic Postcard of the Month Club. If you're interested in any of that stuff, just visit hailsatanpodcast.com. All right, guys, let's talk about the most controversial of the seven tenets. Tenet number four the freedoms of others should be respected, including the freedom to offend. To willfully and unjustly encroach upon the freedoms of another is to forego one's own. When newcomers first discover Satanism or the seven tenets, this always seems to be the one that stands out to them. And it's easy to see why that is. All of the other tenets are espousing things like compassion, empathy, justice, and science. There's a pretty feel-good, easy-to-agree-with vibe to all of that stuff. And then this one shows up, offering the freedom to offend. Well, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? No one likes to be offended. Being offended is a negative or at least uncomfortable feeling for most of us. On the surface, it would seem like offending someone isn't a very nice thing to do, and it certainly doesn't seem like it's in line with being compassionate. There are other interesting things unique to this tenet. One fascinating aspect of this one is that a notable portion of the Satanic Temple's membership don't actually agree with it. Just like with any religion, there are lots of people who outwardly identify as believing in a thing for whatever reason, despite the fact that they don't actually believe in it completely. Saying you Believe in or align yourself with the Satanic Temple or the seven tenets when you really only believe in six of them is like saying you're a good Christian who believes in the Ten Commandments, but you think it's fine to murder people. You don't really believe in that one pesky thou shalt not kill commandment. Now, that's obviously an extreme sounding example, but you get the idea. And if I'm being honest, I actually do think that tenet number four is just as integral to our Satanism as the thou shalt not kill commandment is to Christianity. I think to discard or misinterpret that tenet would dramatically change what we are and what we supposedly represent. To understand exactly what everyone is agreeing or disagreeing with, we have to define what tenet number four actually means in the first place. And spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you what it means. It represents the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. In the most simplified terms, it represents our freedom of speech, among other things. This tenet is something akin to the golden rule applied to free expression. You expect freedom, you must give freedom. But you might be thinking... Who the fuck are you? You didn't write these tenets, so you don't get to tell us what they mean. And you're right. In fact, many people, myself included, to a degree, will say the tenets are open to interpretation. So let's examine that open to interpretation bit, just to clear it up. Let me pick an example. How about a song? How about Tears in Heaven? from eric clapton it's a lovely song
0: you know my name?
2: one might listen to this song and based on some combination of the sound and words depending on the individual they might interpret it to be a sad breakup song the world is full of sad breakup songs so here's another one And because art is subjectively open to interpretation, you are free to do that. Just like you are free to look up at the blue sky and call it red. In both of these cases, despite your personal interpretation, you would be wrong. Tears in Heaven was written about the death of Eric Clapton's four-year-old son, Connor. We know this because Eric Clapton has told us so. If his song makes you feel a certain way or makes you think about your old girlfriend, so be it. That doesn't change the actual meaning or intent of the authors. But luckily, you don't need to take my word for it. The authors of The Seven Tenets are both alive and relatively active, and we're able to get that information pretty directly right from them rather than needing to speculate about what they may have meant. The authors of The Seven Tenets are, of course, Lucian Greaves and Malcolm Jerry, the co-founders of the Satanic Temple. I'm going to be reading you a few things written by one or both of them, and I'm also going to play you some audio clips along the way. First up, just to remove any doubt from anyone's mind— Lucian wrote about the meaning of this tenet very specifically in one of his Patreon blogs that was republished on patheos.com. He wrote, The Satanic Temple's dedication to free speech is, and always has been, enshrined in our fourth tenet. The freedoms of others should be respected, including the freedom to offend, etc. So, there you have it. Now, Since I'm talking so much about it, and the Satanic Temple is so into protecting it, let's go over what free speech is and what it isn't. We'll start at the beginning. The United States Bill of Rights was ratified back on December 15th in the year 1791. From the moment I'm recording this, that was about 230 years ago. It comprises the first ten amendments to the United States Constitution. The very first of those ten amendments says the following. Amendment 1. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's it. Pretty simple, right? The words of that First Amendment establish six separate rights. Let's take a look at them. Number one, the right to be free from governmental establishment of religion. We refer to that as the Establishment Clause. Number two is the right to be free from governmental interference with the practice of religion. That's known as the Free Exercise Clause. There is the right to free speech the right to freedom of the press, the right to assemble peacefully, which includes the right to associate freely with whomever one chooses, and finally, the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. You may be wondering what types of speech are not protected under the First Amendment. Categories of speech that are given lesser or no protection by the First Amendment include obscenity. Fraud, child pornography, speech integral to illegal conduct, speech that incites imminent lawless action, speech that violates intellectual property laws, true threats, and commercial speech such as advertising. Defamation that causes harm to reputation is a tort and is also an exception to free speech. Additionally, there is no citizenship requirement for First Amendment protection. If you are a resident of the United States, you are granted these freedoms. Now, let's talk about the big misunderstood clusterfuck called hate speech. It's a term we see thrown around a lot. And if we're being honest, it's a term used by some people to describe speech that they just personally don't like. But what is hate speech? You might be surprised to learn that there is no legal definition of hate speech under United States law, just as there is no legal definition for evil ideas, rudeness, or unpatriotic speech. Generally, however, hate speech is any form of expression through which speakers intend to vilify, humiliate, or incite hatred against a group or a class of people on the basis of race, religion, skin color, sexual identity, gender identity, ethnicity, disability, or national origin. Again, that is a functional definition of hate speech, but there is no legal definition. The American Bar Association says, Contrary to widely held misimpressions, there is not a category of speech known as hate speech that may uniformly be prohibited or punished. Hateful speech that threatens or incites lawlessness or that contributes to motive for a criminal act may in some instances be punished as part of a hate crime, but not simply as offensive speech. Once again, Lucian Greaves touched on this specific topic in an article he wrote for OrlandoWeekly.com. The article is, Letters to a Satanist, Do You Believe that Free Speech Protects Hate Speech and False Statements? From that article, Lucian had this to say, We should be careful to never allow a ruling body to limit even hate speech, but for the most compelling of reasons— such as that the speech in question is likely to directly incite immediate violence against the party toward whom the speech is directed. Freed speech embodies the freedom to commit heresy and the freedom to offend. Freedom of speech should not be confused with freedom from criticism, critical inquiry, or mockery. To the contrary, freedom of speech protects all of these things, and to expose bad ideas through reasoned ridicule is to serve a legitimate function in the marketplace of ideas. In addition, I have an audio clip here of Lucian discussing the idea that a message being offensive is simply not enough to warrant censorship
3: this kind of situation isn't isn't unheard of anytime you open that door and say all right we got to crack down on this the other side is going to be seeing how they can benefit from that as well and and you you really you really need to define things to to the point where you simply cannot say that somebody else's subjective interpretation that something is offensive is enough in and of itself to say that something should be censored. There has to be more to it than that. Somebody, you know, there has to be some tangible sense of physical danger attached to that. There has to be some real measurable damage damage done beyond that and and not even uh, I don't know how to say it, but you also have to account for the fact that, you know, if the truth is spoken, sometimes uh, 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 you, you can't hold the truth speaker responsible for the damage that causes either.
2: And for any shit I occasionally give the satanic temple or even Lucian himself, I think I am a fair and reasonable man, and I certainly give them credit where it's due And Lucian is right on the money there, and I agree with those statements completely. Once again, from his article on patheos.com, Lucian wrote the following, While I feel that the world would be better served if our social media platforms tried their best to emulate the constitutional model, we should at least seek to be treated fairly, whatever their existing standards may be. However, if the social media mega-giants are any indication of how the satanic temple might be protected by hate speech regulations more broadly applied, we have little hope that we'll find justice in any attempted hate speech regulations. Again, I think he is on the money here. He's absolutely right that hate speech regulations would harm the very people that most satanists would want it to protect, including satanists. Lucian expounds on that a bit, saying, In some cases, GOP leaders have already seized upon the potential opportunities proposed by outcries for increased regulations against hate speech, proposing resolutions that would formally recognize Black Lives Matter as a hate group, as well as other left-leaning groups that the typical advocate for hate speech restrictions would likely be quick to defend. And I will give you just one last quote from Lucian's article. He says, Satanism is a minority religion, and many of the Satanic Temple's campaigns have broad ramifications for civil rights in general. We would do well to understand the history of civil rights and the role that freedom of expression contributed to its cause. As noted by University of Pennsylvania professor Jonathan Zimmerman, Every great champion of African-American freedom in our history, including Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Martin Luther King Jr., has also been a warrior for freedom of expression. And yes, his name is pronounced Du Bois, so don't give me any shit about that one, guys. Because Lucian Greaves is the outgoing spokesperson for the Satanic Temple— We often hear from him on whatever issue is on his mind at the moment, but what about Malcolm Jerry? He's the other co-founder of the Satanic Temple and the other co-author of the Seven Tenets. In fact, it's been suggested that Malcolm is the primary author of the Tenets. We don't hear from him directly very often. Most of the projects he does in public are done under his non-Satan name, Kevin Soling. He makes films and music and does some public speaking and has various creative outlets. He recently took part in a symposium on the seven tenets. It was essentially a Zoom chat where he answered some pre-written, agreed-upon questions in front of an audience. I'm going to play you the audio of a question related to the fourth tenet being presented to him, and you'll hear his answer. It's about seven minutes long. I may pause it to comment along the way, but maybe not. Let's take a listen. This will be Satanic Temple co-founder Malcolm Jerry.
0: So I've heard an interpretation of the fourth tenet, which is that it advocates for our freedom to offend, but not for our freedom to do harm with our speech. Some categories of speech that have been distinguished as harmful rather than just offensive, are harassment, bullying, and fascist propaganda. Did you mean to distinguish offense from harm when creating this tenet? And do you think it's justified to encroach upon the freedom of people who create bigoted and hostile environments for others? Or does this tenet advocate for the freedom to say and express anything?
1: Great question, because I think this comes up a lot. I find it somewhat ironic that people, uh, a lot of people have issues with the whole concept of offending. So there's a few ways, uh, I guess, and a few spheres that I want to tackle and address this. First, the reason why I think it's ironic and, and hysterical is because we're Satanists. And people, people are, are, are routinely offended by Satanism, so much so that everything that we do is 10 times harder than it is for everyone else. For instance, if we want to get insurance for an event, We can't. Actually, the Satanic Temple has been, we've contacted 30, 40 different insurance agencies. No one, no one will give the Satanic Temple liability insurance. Uh, There's another, you know, nonprofit that we created that the same exact mission called Reason Alliance. Myself and and Lucian are the directors of that. Uh, that can get insurance from all the same places that rejected the Satanic temple hosting all the same events, but because it doesn't have Satan in the name, but it also means, you know, we can't get lawyers. We, people are are routinely offended. And I think a lot of people in the organization have somehow, and I'm not quite sure how uh, lost sight of that and don't really appreciate uh, just how difficult things are for the organization and, and how many more steps it takes to get things done. At the same time, the word offense is something that is, I, I'm, I'm unapologetic, you know, no, no one should apologize for, for being a Satanist and no, one, and for that reason, I, I don't see that our offense is necessarily by design. Um, if, if one wants to wear, you know, clothes in a certain way, I, I know there are people who, who are offended by short skirts or something to that effect. Uh, that's considered offensive, but you know, who, who is generating the offense? I mean, it's the offense is the recipient. It's, it's someone who who takes offense at, at something. There are other scenarios such as uh, the, the invocations I think are a good example. Uh, what was interesting at first was um I used to think that when uh, the, the ruling came down that allowed for religious uh, invocations, that it was a bad ruling. But I, I, I've come to realize that it was it was actually a great ruling, um, and and that I was mistaken. Which doesn't happen too often. Ah, just kidding. And it, it's not a, you know one should have the freedom. Of city councils, cities uh, should have the right to give invocation, but they should have the the wisdom to know whether or not they should. <laughs> Um, I think it's fine, you know, that everyone should be allowed to give an invocation. It doesn't, I I think that's great. I I, I think that's better. You know, there there are two approaches that either no one should give invocations or everyone should. I, I, I think everyone is fine, you know, as far as the first amendment is concerned, being consistent with that. Um, the default that no one should is, is sort of problematic. It assumes that we're, we're not entitled to, to that kind of liberty. And I think we should want liberty, that we want freedom. But with that freedom knows, is the understanding, you know, you do, you know these, these towns should not exercise that freedom if the people in that town are sufficiently mature to permit our organization to participate. So these are examples of the right to offend. And like I said, the, the temple by its very nature is offensive. And whether we mean it to be or not, and this is why it is essential to have the right to offend at the same time, compassion and empathy should then say, well, you have the right to offend, but that doesn't mean you should go out and offend, you know, you can say racial epithets, you shouldn't, you should exercise wisdom, compassion, empathy, and, and not do that. But to deprive someone of, of the right to do that is problematic. But what isn't problematic in terms of deprivation, though, is libel. Uh, you know, things that cause, you know, real harm, um, inciting violence. I and mean, these things have pretty much been adjudicated and and, and pretty well over time in, in the courts uh, as far as the kinds of things, the kinds of speech that are, that are inappropriate, the ones... You know, the, the ones that are that are threats, the ones that, uh, you know, like I said, incite violence or, or, or defame um, uh, those kinds of speech goes or, or actions go beyond offense and, and, ter- and are actually uh, harm of a real kind. Not that one you know isn't necessarily emotionally harmed by uh, by an offensive statement. That is something that one can overcome or reconcile. It's, it's not uh, it, it could be hurtful. Uh, just as you know, the satanic displays are hurtful to people whose deeply held beliefs are such that that represents the antithesis of everything that they've been taught to believe. But uh, that's the consequence of pluralism. I, I, I think it, it is the capacity to draw that line it has been done fairly well uh, in in the courts uh, already in terms of of what is considered problematic uh you know what what is considered illegal speech you know yelling fire in in a theater as one example uh is you know it puts people in danger you know as opposed to you know something that is that is offensive distasteful like like hate speech which is not something to condone but it's something that one you know has to begrudgingly accept in order to uh, to exist in, in a pluralistic society, and again, uh, I, I'm not advocating it. I'm not again, you know, compassion and empathy. But at the same time, there are times where being offensive is is appropriate and necessary if one is challenging a certain power construct that is doing harm. Uh, I, I certainly would love to do things that are legally offensive to the justices that are abdicating their responsibilities. Uh, and have, you know, whatever, whatever rights that, that I have under the first amendment to make a statement against that, that could be considered offensive. I've never do anything that if it's threatening, that would be illegal. And I think that is correct, but, uh, but offensive is, is not. And, and it is, it is a, a tool that should be in our, in our disposal. Um, but it should be like, like all tools, it needs to be used appropriately. And, and, you know, going back to my mention of, of, uh, you know, the person in my town who is, you know, battered by a hammer. You know, a hammer is a tool. It can be used constructively. It can be used destructively. We don't want to eliminate and make hammers illegal because of some, the actions of some psychopath. You know, it, it's something that, uh, that must be acknowledged and endured. All right. Toward
2: the end there, he summarized his stance pretty clearly. He said, something that is offensive distasteful like hate speech, which is not something to condone, but it's something that one has to begrudgingly accept in order to exist in a pluralistic society. And I do agree with Malcolm completely on that one. Next, I'd like to dig a little further into the idea of offending and being offended. Malcolm touched on that a bit. The question is, who is responsible for the feeling of offense. Is it the person being offended or the person doing the offending? I believe it is the offended, not the offender, that is responsible. Let me give you an example. I'm going to describe you, the average listener of this podcast. You are a kind, loving, intelligent person. You take good care of your loved ones, and when you have free time or money, it goes to important charities that help people in need. You like dogs, and you keep your room tidy. You're a good Satanist, you're living your life as best you can, and you aren't going out of your way to offend anyone, ever. What I've just described to you is a person who is genuinely disgusting, scary, immoral, and deeply offensive to many, many people. Trust me, there is nothing you can do, good Satanist, to change the fact that many people will find your very existence to be offensive. And don't even mention being gay, or trans, or polyamorous, or any number of things. It is all very offensive to large numbers of people. So is that your fault? I think not. I think that's on them for not being more accepting to views and experiences that are different from their own. And just for fun, really ask yourself, who do you think is more likely to find themselves serving as a Supreme Court justice? You or someone who is offended by you? The openly gay, polyamorous Satanist, or the deeply offended Catholic mom? And speaking of the Supreme Court, what do they have to say about all this? Through the course of several cases, the Supreme Court has unanimously reaffirmed that there is no hate speech exception to the First Amendment. Justice Samuel Alito wrote, The idea that the government may restrict speech expressing ideas that offend strikes at the heart of the First Amendment. Speech that demeans on the basis of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, age, disability, or any other similar ground is hateful. But the proudest boast of our free speech jurisprudence is that we protect the freedom to express the thought that we hate. And Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote separately, A law found to discriminate based on viewpoint is an egregious form of content discrimination, which is presumptively unconstitutional. A law that can be directed against speech found offensive to some portion of the public can be turned against minority and dissenting views to the detriment of all the First Amendment does not entrust that power to the government's benevolence. Instead, our reliance must be on the substantial safeguards of free and open discussion in a democratic society. In closing, let me summarize all of this a bit. If you feel that free speech should be restricted in any way, more than it is currently, including the regulation of hate speech, then you are not aligned with the seven tenets of the satanic temple. And that's okay. Obviously, it's a tiny minority religion that most people are not aligned with. So there's no need to feel bad or challenged or defensive about that. You love the other six tenets. Cool. You support the legal actions and activism of the satanic temple. Cool can you still say that you're a Satanist? Who the fuck am I to tell you that you can't? You can say that the blue sky is red, and you can also tell me to fuck off. And because of the First Amendment and the people who fight for it to continue as it is, you have the freedom to say that, and you have the freedom to disagree with me. So on behalf of James Madison the primary author of the Bill of Rights, you're welcome. Before I go, I want to mention one last thing. In Satanic Delco, we have a weekly Zoom meeting that many of us enjoy. A whole bunch of us get on there to discuss things related to Satanism or our personal lives or whatever we're in the mood for that night. I make an effort to keep politics and stressful or divisive issues away from that time we have together. But while I was preparing this episode, I brought this discussion to our Zoom chat. We had a whole bunch of people with various opinions and perspectives and experiences related to these topics, all sharing and interacting with one another. And I have to say, it was a really great experience. Everyone was respectful and accepting of everyone else, despite some differing opinions, which is exactly the way I would expect it to go with Satanic Delco. So I really just wanted to say thank you to all of those fantastic members of Satanic Delco who took part in that discussion, and with their permission, I did record that conversation. I haven't decided what I will do with that recording, if anything. Now, I'm going to end the show. And after you hear the little outro, I'm going to leave you with a TED Talk from an ACLU attorney named Lee Rowland from 2018. I thought Lee did a great job of laying out her case here, and I really loved her message about arming yourself with information and knowledge. So until next time, please visit HailSatanPodcast.com. Stay safe out there, and don't take any shit from anybody. Hell Satan.
0: 2017 was a hell of a year for the First Amendment. Nowhere was more central to this culture war than the campuses and universities across America, including right here at the University of Nevada, Reno. Two UNR students became infamous for their speech in the past year, found themselves embroiled in two of the biggest free speech controversies of the, of the past couple of years. Student Peter Satanovich became the face of white nationalism when a picture of him snarling, holding a tiki torch at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville went viral. On the complete opposite end of the political spectrum, if you can call it that, graduate Colin Kaepernick went on to the NFL and used his position to highlight police brutality and racial injustice by taking a knee during the national anthem. Both men became incredibly controversial for their speech. There were calls and campaigns for both men to be expelled for their opinions. But regardless of whether you believe with one, agree with one of them, or both of them, or neither, the First Amendment protects both of those men and their opinions from censorship and retaliation by the government. That's a good thing, and I want to tell you why. It's becoming more common for me to hear that we should have lower protections for speech, that specifically we should criminalize hate speech. I hear this from the left a lot. I think a lot of progressives envision a world where people like Colin Kaepernick can take a knee in protest of racial injustice without fear of retaliation from the government, without fear that the president will pressure the NFL to fire him. But they also want to live in a world where a government school like UNR can expel a student like Peter Satanovic for his hateful views. That is a fantasy. And more than that, it's dangerous. I'm a progressive. It's not hard for me to pick between white nationalism and racial justice. One is abhorrent. One is an overdue demand for equal rights. But what would happen if I gave the government the right to decide which of those men was too hateful to speak? President Trump is a pretty useful barometer. He called the marchers at Charlottesville very fine people while reserving his ire for black football players who take a knee as sons of bitches. Your hate speech may not be the government's idea of hate speech. I sure as hell know it's not mine. But even if you happen to agree with Trump, can you be confident that the next president, the next government, will agree with your worldview? You shouldn't be. That's why, above all, I am an anti-authoritarian. I know that the U.S. government has a long history of wielding its raw power against the vulnerable communities that speak truth to that power, against those who seek to change the status quo. And because I want every student to be able to take a knee without fear of government censorship, I am a true believer in the First Amendment. But even as a First Amendment attorney, I find a lot of the common tropes and myths about the First Amendment really unsatisfying. So I want to go through three of these myths, dust them off, and hopefully in the process we'll come up with three practical rules for exercising your free speech rights powerfully and strategically. So the first one is one I suspect we all learned in kindergarten. If you remember your nursery rhymes, please feel free to join me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Does anyone as an adult actually believe this? It's It's manifestly untrue. Uh, I'm I'm a free speech attorney precisely because I believe that words matter, right? It's ludicrous to protect free speech by denying its very power. So, why do we lie to kids, right? Why Why do we fabricate this thing for them? Well, it's because humans of all ages can be vicious. It's just true. And when a kid is at the receiving end of injustice, a taunt, hateful language, We want that kid to be empowered, not diminished. In February, notorious troll Milo Yiannopoulos had a planned speech at UC Berkeley. Students and others in the community went nuts. There were protests, there were riots. Things were set on fire. The administration canceled his talk. In April, there was a repeat, same thing, except this time it was Ann Coulter. She was going to speak, school officials said, There's going to be riots, they canceled her talk. Those two individuals, Ann and Milo, man, they became martyrs. They got to take on the role of victims of liberal censorship. They went on media tours, the media ate it up. They got more attention for being silenced than they ever did for trying to peddle their actual substantive views. So, I think it's helpful to think of professional provocateurs and trolls as we would those schoolyard bullies. Yeah, their words can hurt. There's no point in denying that. But the better question is, how do we respond to that, right? And a troll, a provocateur, wants you to censor them, right? That's part of the goal. It feeds into their power. It gives them something else to sell. So we don't have to march to that tune. You don't have to play that role. And we can think of them like these bullies. Yeah, their words hurt, but there is also power In sass, there's power in refusing to be goaded into a fight or to play the role of censor. Don't do it. But some words wound in ways that are different from others, which brings us to myth number two. I hear this one a lot, particularly online. We all know that hate speech isn't protected by the First Amendment. Not so. As that anecdote about Trump hopefully made you think, Hate speech can be in the eye of the beholder. Ear of the be hearer, I guess, if that's a word. In just this week in Spain, a man was arrested for the hate crime, this is real, of calling cops slackers on Facebook. Police are covered under the Spanish hate crime law. That's what criticizing your government looks like in a country without a First Amendment. But... We don't have to protect speech just out of paranoia that our government will warp what we think speech and hate speech are. There's also an upshot. In the late 1960s, a KKK leader named Charles Brandenburg was arrested on criminal charges of incitement to violence for holding a KKK rally. Uh, The speech was as abhorrent, as vicious, racist as you might imagine. But the KKK's lawyers took it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And they challenged this crime, said that he had a free speech right to be a KKK member. and The Supreme Court thought about it and said, you're right, before we allow the government to punish you for your speech, it has to pass such a high bar. There has to be an immediate and specific risk of actual physical violence to a real person. And this KKK rally, well, is a group of white racists there wasn't anyone around that they were intending to actually engage in violence against. That case in a vacuum might be tough to swallow, I think particularly if you're a person of color, but it's not the end of the story. At about the same time, a lion of the civil rights movement named Charles Evers was giving a huge speech to a gathering of NAACP supporters who had come together to boycott white-owned racist businesses that didn't allow black Americans to come into their business. And as he's giving his speech, Evers gets worked up and really passionate, and he says, I'll wring the damn neck of anybody who breaks this boycott. So what's he done, right? He's he's fantasized about some future violence. It's hypothetical. He's not pointing at Bob there, right? So the Brandenburg case has just come out at the Supreme Court, and the NAACP's lawyers look at that and say, well, this can't be right. How can a KKK leader get a a get-out-of-jail-free card Right? But our civil rights guy, Mr. Evers, is being sued for incitement by the same white-owned businesses that he was protesting. Mr. Evers challenged these charges too. And he went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, well, I guess we're constrained by that Brandenburg case to give you your free speech rights too. I want to be clear, by the way, that I don't see anything equivalent between the KKK and the NAACP. But the court is, a, is an odd place. It's a bit stripped of context in history. It's a kind of bastion of privilege. And all they boiled it down to was, is this theoretical future violence? Or is there an immediate and specific risk of harm to a real person? And they said, well, from that point of view, these look the same. Now, I know a lot of people are skeptical that in practice, the rights that are extended to people like a KKK leader actually trickle down to somebody like an NAACP leader. They're not wrong to be skeptical. Our country has always taken a while to distribute its rights equally among its citizenry. Right, think of the right to vote. Did we all get it at the same time, regardless of sex, regardless of race? Absolutely not. Or even in today's world, do you think your constitutional rights at arrest look the same regardless of your race? Your right to carry a gun? Do you think that looks the same whether you're black or you're white? Again, no. But is the answer to eliminate or lessen the very constitutional protections that allow us to hold the government accountable when it violates our rights? Hell no. Instead, making sure that constitutional rights are evenly distributed is a process, right? And it's our job. The First Amendment is no different, right? So when the Supreme Court, when the powers that be... Give that right to somebody like Brandenburg, a KKK leader. It's our job, civil rights leaders, those who believe in equal rights and justice, to ratchet everybody up to that same level of protection for constitutional rights. And that's precisely what the NAACP did. And that's all of our job, too. That's what I do as a free speech attorney. And that's what you need to do as students. You need to make sure that these theoretical rules filter down on the ground. So are students up for it? That brings us to our third and final myth. Today's students are just snowflakes. I hear it all the time. Usually meant as an insult, by the way, as beautiful as snowflakes are. So, because of the First Amendment, public schools and universities cannot ban people from from campus simply because their views are hateful. So that means that over the past year black and Jewish students have had to leave their dorm rooms and walk to class passing by people who have called for their extermination. It means that women students have had to walk by speakers on campus who call feminism a cancer. LGBT students have had to walk by people saying transgenderism is a medical disorder, right? No adult has to go to work and walk by people saying they're less than human or that they shouldn't exist. I don't think students are snowflakes. I think they're badasses, Because they bear the brunt of that First Amendment on campus where these professional provocateurs come, right? Now, when I say that silencing your political opponents isn't the answer, it's not because I think that's weak. It's because I think it's unstrategic. So, if silencing your enemies isn't an answer, what does empowerment look like in the First Amendment? Well, sometimes it's just sheer numbers. The week after Charlottesville, a group of people planned a rally on Boston Common that they termed the Free Speech Rally. They were alt-right folks, and this is a week after Charlottesville. Only a handful of the permit permit holders showed up, but 40,000-plus members of the Massachusetts community and from across the country engaged in a counter-protest ringing Boston Common, standing strong, right? sending a very powerful message of resistance together. That's a blizzard of snowflakes, right? There's no weakness in that. But sometimes, just a single person will make a difference. One of my favorite stories from the last couple of years, free speech. one of my favorite free speech victories from the last few years, is a, a musician uh, who was really appalled that the KKK was planning to march um, in his hometown of Charleston. And so, using the tools at his disposal, he got out his sousaphone. That's one of these big brass right, instruments. Boom, boom. And he got out on the street. And he got next to the KKK, and he just oompa, 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 along with them. It's amazing. You should you should look up the video. It's worth watching. And without saying a single word, he he stripped these fascists bare. They couldn't even bear to go on marching. They were so humiliated. You can't keep up a straight face of fascism with a goofy tuba line behind you. It's just hard to do. So look, I believe in the First Amendment fundamentally first and foremost because I know it's the greatest tool we have to keep the government out of regulating the conversations that spark every change in the world. If you want to keep having conversations that change the world, you should embrace this First Amendment too, messiness and all. And even though those three myths might not be true, I hope they started to reveal a few real nuggets of truth about how we can strategically exercise our powerful First Amendment rights. Number one, know your history. Know that when rights are extended to the power and powerful and privileged, that it's our job to make sure that everybody benefits from those rights. Understand that the same First Amendment, that first extended to a KKK member, was used strategically by civil rights leaders to cover the NAACP leader as well. That's a success story, and we have to keep doing it. Number two, don't try and silence your way out of a debate. As we've seen from Free Speech Week, as we've seen from the Free Speech Rally, people trying to co-opt the term free speech just feeds them power. We can't let them do that. Free speech as a concept, its power is in its indivisibility. It's equal for the KKK leader and the NAACP leader alike, right? So don't dance to that tune. You don't have to give the provocateur the censorship she's desperately hoping that you give her. So that brings us to number three. Dance to your own tune. Figure out for yourself when you go to a counter-protest in numbers or alone with your tuba. Figure out when you hold an alternative a more loving event across campus. Figure out when you think there are ideas that are just fundamentally unworthy of debate. And the way that you figure out how to handle these conflicts, how to handle speech that you abhor, can be a great guideline for how you handle conflict throughout the rest of your life. My name is Lee Rowland. I'm an unabashed progressive. I'm a skeptic. I'm an anti-authoritarian for all of those reasons. I believe in a robust and indivisible First Amendment. Join me.